Lydia Davis, a 2003 MacArthur Fellow, is the author of a novel, The End of the Story, and three volumes of fiction, the latest of which is Samuel Johnson is Indignant. She's also the translator of many works from French to English and was recently named a Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters by the French government. She has translated Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. That's what we'll be talking about as it relates to her role as a translator. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to start with your take on what the role of a translator is. The translator, very important, I think, and very, um, until recently, under underrated or ignored whenever possible, underpaid, I think not sufficiently exploited in, in, in a good sense, not sufficiently uh, used in American publishing in any case. The How do you mean not sufficiently used? I, I, I've put it in a sort of roundabout way, but there simply aren't the sort of numbers of translations from foreign texts that there should be coming into our culture in, in the U.S. Is that, a, uh, is that a sort of a function of the United States' ethnocentrism? I, I think it is very much so um, in part, which is, which is bizarre considering that it's a country of immigrants um, from other cultures. I think it's it's a, a matter of expense also, which has gotten more and more pressing, or at least has gotten uh, more of a consideration. Any book costs a little more if, if it's a translation. You have to pay the translator, and that often makes the difference. But you don't minds. have to pay the big... For a dead writer, you don't have to pay any sort of royalty right. or percentages. What, what kind of rate would you have to pay a translator? You know, I'm out of touch with... with Rates. It's embarrassing to say. I know what my advances have been, but I, I don't know what they are per thousand words. I used to be obsessed by how much I was getting per thousand words, and now if the advance is adequate and the royalty is adequate, then I'll do it. If you I focus think. on the work. I do, yeah. yeah. Not the pay. It, not the pay as much now. That was the case with the Proust in particular because um, I was very happy to be asked to do it. And, uh, this I is, through, I this did is through Cambridge University, sir, is it? No, this was Penguin commissioned the translation from uh, of the entire book from, uh, I think it was seven different translators at once. Yeah, and I think there's a Cambridge professor that's sort of coordinating it. Yes, that's right, Christopher Prendergast. Okay. What a ridiculous uh, way of approaching it. <laughs> it's ridiculous only if you don't want to get it done. I mean, in the sense that if you ask one translator to do it, he or she may very well die before it's done. And several have died in the process of trying to do it. It was a strange business, and people have challenged it and said, how can you possibly you know, switch translators in the middle of a book? And switch, you know, six times or five times. But, you know, Proust dominates. Actually, uh, this is interesting here. Uh, speaking of dying, Proust, Proust's work, Remembrance of Things Past, and Swan's Way in particular, is a novel of the self. And he said, I want to translate my own soul if it doesn't die in the meantime. Uh huh. 
So are you translating Proust's soul if you don't die in the meantime? If I don't die in the meantime, well, it's fortunately the book has already tr- you know done it, so and I haven't died yet. Translating his soul, I, w- I would never have thought of it that way. I did feel I had to get very close to him and very much inside his way of thinking. I tended to, um, say, read around in his letters while I was doing this, not so much to find out you know, what he was saying to his various friends as to find out what his style was when he was being presumably quite relaxed in his writing. I don't suppose any writer is entirely relaxed, even writing a casual letter. But he wrote so many of them that I, I you know, I knew he didn't he couldn't deliberate over every phrase. So I wanted to see what his style was natively in that sense. And that was very interesting. He he tended to resist closures. He would leave off a period at the end of uh, the last sentence of the letter and that sort of thing often just as if he didn't want it ever to end mm. I guess that's what a lot of readers may feel while they're working their way through the work that he didn't want it to end or they didn't they well, don't want it to that end it would ne- well, either that or that it will never end it will end. never end yeah, because well, it's, it's, and, and some of his sentences I think are renowned for being the longest in the in the language. I think so. I mean, there may have been writers who have attempted longer ones as a tour de force, but he didn't do it as a tour de force. No. He did it because the, the sentence had to be that long. And he, he actually is very precise in his, in his writing. One of the motivations connected with beauty is to share it. When you see something beautiful, you're caught up with the desire to share it with others. Yes. You were approached to do this, but is this does this come into play as as a translator? I'm not sure where it comes. I think my excitement over not over Proust, but over the over the whole practice of translating his style into Shall I pause? Yeah, we're okay. No, we can just keep, uh, uh, pause. I know that there's a very vocal toilet. That's right. <laughs> and I do, it's about as awful a noise as you can imagine. I don't know if it would be recognizable, but... No, no, for us, know, though. My excitement... Well, I think any, any emotion you, you do want to communicate, you know, an impulse is to communicate it right away. And so excitement over beauty is one, one of those emotions... My excitement was in the activity of translating the Proust, you know, finding the, building the sentences in English and finding the equivalents. And if he has, say, alliteration at the end of a, of a long paragraph, you know, three words beginning with P or something, I'm trying to find three words equivalent in English, even perhaps beginning with P, which is quite often possible when you're using cognates. That was the excitement, which I then wanted to communicate in, in a lengthy introduction, which I think was I now think was a big mistake. But that was my excitement. The thrill of being able to capture what he said in a way that, that no one else has. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be specifically thinking no one else has done this, but just that, ah, you know, I'm, I'm really getting closer, closer to Proust now. The Scott Moncrief translation is is very beautiful in its own way, sort of its own work. 
but it actually isn't isn't as close. It's not the style in which Proust actually wrote. He was not as flowery, and he was not as wordy, and he objected to wordy styles. Yes, in fact, I want to quote this. Davis may be less poetic than Moncrief, but much closer to plain words and to fussy, tired, neurotic Proust, who was driven to get it right, which is paramount. When words are right, then the author and translator fall aside, and what you have left is the world. Oh, and what's that? What is that from? I believe that's from a review in the Village Voice. Would you agree with that? That the world is left when the writer and the translator well, fall. When away. yeah, when you get it right, the author, the translator, perhaps even the language get out of the way so the reader can really feel what the author wanted them to feel. I suppose, I mean, it's, I mean, it's in this case, perhaps it's, um, I think you can remain aware of, of how a book is written, and, and sometimes that is part of the essence of the book and the, and the world that the book is conveying. So you don't always need the style and the writer to fall away. I think the translator, though, should be invisible especially when a translator is also a writer. You have the tricky question of, you know, is your, are you imposing your own style on the translated book? And I firmly believe you shouldn't. You're not doing your own writing, and you should, you should, you're in service to the original text, and you should disappear into the original author. So again, I suppose in terms of the role of the translator, it would be to, to get as close as to the intention of the author as possible. Yes, um, not to read and summarize to yourself and then create a new text so much as to follow. I do follow word by word, not meaning that I uh, translate literally word by word in the final result, but I do try to follow as closely as I can as the sentence unfolds often not even reading ahead, um, which is the opposite of what people believe. You know, many people would believe you should read ahead, understand, interpret to yourself, and then begin translating. But other translators also, including me, start from the beginning without reading ahead and uh, let the sentence unfold and the story unfold as we go along translating which keeps it much more alive and stops us assuming we know too much or assuming we know more than we really should mm. as we go along. So you discover along with the reader? Yes, it's much more much more exciting that way. That's, yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about as well. As, as it seems to me that you, by translating, are probably one of the closest readers of Proust uh, alive and as a result of that you would know what he wanted to convey to the world more than pretty well anyone else and what is that? Well you know I'm, I'm not sure that I am the closest reader of Proust I'm sort of like the person who you know you put her in a hotel room and you only allow her to see three inches a, at a time of the room 
and she can reproduce each three inches very well. And when she's done reproducing the entire room, you know, each three inches at a time, you'll have the room, you'll see the room. But she didn't sit back and look at the whole room and understand it before she began. So in a way, I don't know if I'm the closest. Um, Technically, you may be. Technically, I've gone over every word maybe more closely and its relation to the other words in its sense and how they work together syntactically. And But I'm not the closest in the sense of, say, the Proust critic who really has spent his entire lifetime reading and contemplating and reading other critics. And um, I really think that that critic has a perhaps a deeper understanding, can talk more extensively about and I sort of had to become Proust for a while, the way an actor would become a character in a Moliere play or something. Um, and maybe a critic watching the play would know, be able to talk far better about that character. But the actor was that character for a while. That's how I feel. So you closeted yourself up in a cork-lined room and... <laughs> Almost. I, I and you became... Did you, be, did you become... Now, okay, I'm assuming that Proust was jealous, but this is the one thing about Swan's Way that really uh, sticks in my mind, is how he depicted jealousy. Well, I'm sure he was he wasn't very jealous, but he was also very imaginative. He could, I think he was terribly empathetic with his friends and probably strangers too, and could imagine fierce jealousy as well as feel it. Did you, when you were translating, did you get caught up in those feelings? No, no, I, d I didn't. Uh, I, I think I was most moved by, again, language, the language and uh, how so it all fit together and how it conveyed. I think I was happiest translating the, say, descriptions of the scenery, more so than maybe the, the, the drawing room scenes of the Verdurins. I'm, I'm less happy with dialogue. It comes harder for me. And it's more of a problem anyway with translation because you know people's speech is so so much uh, born in, from their environment and their times. And that's always the problem, how to make speech in the translation fully alive and yet not too local, not too tied to, you know, say the US in 2000. That would be utterly wrong. So you have to f you have to find living language that's timeless. Also, it's interesting though that uh, the various uh, poets, particularly um, Ted Hughes, was a was a significant translator of poetry, uh, Greek poetry, um, among other kinds. I wondered if he and you want to become your generation's voice of the particular author that you're translating. Why does everyone want to translate great works? Is it so that they can convey the, the, the wonderful beauty of that work to their generation? Well, um, I really don't think about my role, you know, until afterwards maybe, maybe as you ask this question or something. But I don't that's not the the motivation that starts me working. Um, 
that I want to show my generation. I mean, I, I've translated a bit of Tristram Shandy from the English of that time to the English of this time. And that, that was partly for fun, but that would be much more likely to be motivated by, you know, let the, say, young people, young readers of this time enjoy Tristram Shandy without having to struggle with that English. That this English may lead them back to that English. So that I would have a direct sort of mission there. With the Proust, no, it's still tied to the text. You know, I read the Moncrief and say, but this isn't right, this is not Proust. So whether it's for my generation or the generation 50 years ago, I would say I want to make it right. I want to put it in English closer to Proust's. In a way that Proust wouldn't have got ticked off about. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, the puzzle is always, you know, how can work written in two centuries ago still be alive to us now, but a, a translation made two centuries ago, I mean, some of them are still alive, but but my ambition would be to write a translation that would remain alive. You know, It's often said, well, every generation needs a new translation, and, and maybe, but I, I keep thinking there must be a translation that would hold up over time. It's a tricky one to try to think about. I think Moncrief's translation holds up over time. It's just that it's not accurate. That that, that may be a good point. Yes, it's it holds up as a work in its in itself, but it it really doesn't represent Proust. And it's another paradox that 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 translation and the early translation of, of Kafka are tremendously influential. Be, and yet they are not close to the original author. Incidentally, is there a, is there a new translation of Kafka that's, that accurately reflects? There are a few, yeah, now. But who was it? Was it Muir or the y- Yes, yes, the, the Muir couple. And they, they modified Kafka to make him a little more palatable, a little bit easier. He's actually, his style is a bit thornier and a little bit more, a little jerkier and more difficult. In German, so those translators felt their roles, their role was to make it more acceptable. The uh, in Canada, particularly, a lot of um, parents have put their children into French immersion to enable them to get, well, a job, I guess, if they live in the nation's mm-hmm. capital, but but also to give them a different perspective on the world. Yeah. What are the different perspectives of the world? Is the French perspective and the English perspective? Oh, I would. What what that question sets me thinking is, you know, how parochial the U.S. is, and how much that bothers me. I wish it were almost a requirement that I mean we do have foreign language requirements, but they're um, kind of empty. I've seen my own children, you know, be given say three years of French or four years of Spanish and come out with nothing, absolutely nothing. So it, it's the requirement is there in name only. These children don't end up knowing another language. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you keep them in immersion for oh, I don't long mean, enough... I don't mean the immersion programs, but the kind of language teaching that I, my children had. Mm-hmm. But I guess the getting to the question, what is the, perspective, the French perspective 
this is a big question, I don't know, but versus the English perspective. Is the English perspective the more rational, for example, or you know, looking at, say, the same issue of, of love or um, time or... Oh, well, not necessarily more rational, but I think that's an impossible question, <laughs> in fact. But, I, I mean, I do think it's terribly important to keep in mind that every language is not just a, a, an equivalent of the same thing, but every language really expresses a very different reality. And the English word house and the French word maison just are very different in their connotations and their associations, and the same with bread and pain and, um, you know, anything you want to name, you know. But... William the Conqueror brought over quite a few French words that are absorbed into the English language. They are, you know, the words that tend to be the more intellectual or abstract, and as well as the culinary words. And it's very interesting what parts of our language in English come from. Come from the French, which really means come from the Latin, um, and which come from the Germanic. But if children were required to learn Arabic or any other language, you know, African languages, they would bring a richness of culture into our culture. And so that we would have a truly interesting mix of cultures, say, in the U.S., which we don't have. Uh, and we, we don't really have to the extent that we could. But I don't think that will ever happen. So. This melting pot thing, then, that you're, you don't like because everyone sort of comes into the States and then they're stamped into that mold and then... To some extent. I think I'm exaggerating in the, in the, in the sense that if I really went into certain households of you know, mixed, mixed origins, there would be a rich, a rich culture within that household. But somehow the, the country as a whole seems to reject you know, a truly healthy mixture. Yeah, I suppose that's what differentiates Canada from the States to some extent. Well, I think it's just wonderful that, that Canada at least has two living languages. Uh, it, just fantastic. You touched on it before, the part of translation that you enjoy the most, searching for words that, just for alliteration, for example, or that, that are right and that work. What is it that you love about the art of translation? I suppose, very simply put, it's 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 a combination of two things. One is is writing itself. It's an aspect of writing. It's not the anxiety-producing aspect where you're wondering where to go next with a, a piece of writing, but it's the pure pleasure of putting putting words together in a sentence. But it's also for me a puzzle-solving pleasure. I love word puzzles and puzzles in general of all kinds. And this is another puzzle. Here here's this sentence. Now you have to constructed the same way, you have to try for the same sound effects, you have to put the words together so that they're alive and vibrant. And so when you solve the puzzle, you've also written another sentence. So it's, it's a twofold pleasure. And again, I would assume that you w would want the author to approve of what you've done. Absolutely. I feel, I feel very close to the author whether he's dead or alive. <laughs> In fact, it's probably easier if he's dead. The irony, of course, is that they really wouldn't 
know, because if they don't speak the language, they wouldn't know. They wouldn't be able to approve. They wouldn't accept that my experience with living authors is that they, even if they don't have a perfect command of English, they, they anxiously ask all their friends, you know, how does this seem to you? How does this seem to you? Or they ask in French, of course. And the, fr- the friends are the ones who, who say, oh, it's good or it's not good. Now, I'm not sure if you said this or someone else said this, but I'm going to quote, the shape of the sentence was the shape of the thought and every word was necessary to the thought. That's Proust. Okay. (laughs) What do you think about that? Well, I I was very happy to find that. I think it is Proust. (laughs) I I do get get a little mixed up sometimes, but um, there were, there were, there still are readers of Proust who say, you know, to the translator, why don't you break up the sentences? They're simply too long, too difficult. Proust himself, I guess, was challenged by other people, you know, saying, why are you doing this? And I think that was his answer, you know, and I utterly believe it. The sentence had to continue till the thought was entirely captured, even if that meant, you know, building a pyramid of, of subordinate clauses and digressing and, and returning to the main part of the sentence. Every word was necessary, it was very concise. As he said, the shape of the thought demanded the shape of that sentence, so it's a translator's obligation to reconstruct that sentence in the same way, to build it the same way. Just uh, in closing, um, as a translator, uh, you get very close to the original author. Can you sum up the essence of Proust (laughs) in three minutes? Two minutes. No, no, I absolutely can't. <laughs> um, well, can you summarize then the connection that you had with Proust? I guess summaries are hard for me. The essence of my craft as a translator is not to summarize. And so, and even my, my own way of writing is not to summarize. And my own way of thinking is not to summarize. That's why it's alien to me. I can work at it sometimes, but um, what was the question again? (laughs) (laughs) I I wanted you to give us an essence of Proust, the human being, as basically as a result of your sort of running through his words and thoughts through your mind in a way that few others have. Um, So I wanted that, but you figured that was impossible. Otherwise, to, to just to talk about briefly about the connection that you felt with this other human being. Well, I suppose I, I sense him, as I said, as a very empathetic person and a very kind person, a very troubled person, agonized, really. I have great sympathy with his, um, his endless correction of his own text. Um, it's so entirely understandable to me that he would go back to a sentence and and see how it could be further refined and further expanded and further nuanced. And when we were saying earlier that the book seems endless, um, I I think it actually would have been endless if if somehow he could have remained alive. I I doubt if he ever would have stopped uh, expanding and correcting. And um, and I I just think that's wonderful. It's, It's just an immense fertility in him. 
that he took he took the sort of the data, the material of his life, and um, an infinite amount could be said about each part of it, even though he was fictionalizing. Uh, to me, that's that's very uh, appealing, and I, I just loved being part of part of that in the sense of, of bringing it over into English. And I assume that you've done, if you approve of Proust's self-analytical nature uh, as an artist, you try to replicate that in your own creative work because you are an accomplished uh, short story writer and novelist yourself in English. I suppose I, 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 it's not that, that Proust inspired me to do what I do, but more that I find him a kindred soul because I also have a tendency to look for the particular nuances of situations. I'm far briefer than Proust. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the pleasures of translating him was to be able to write enormously long sentences, which I would never do natively. Go for something much more, much briefer, shorter. But the self-analysis is there, although with with a an, an analysis of other things too. But with an objectivity, as Proust did, you know, he brought great objectivity to to his uh, analyses. For the universal from the particular. Uh, yes, but also simply putting at a distance what might have been very close to him, a sort of artistic distance. Your latest book, or the one that's just about to come out, another s- series of short stories? It's or is another it collection of, of stories called Varieties of Disturbance. It's, a, it's over 50, I forget what the count is, but in some as short as, in fact, the ones that I wrote while I was translating Proust are the shortest in the book, and consisting only of a, a title and one or two lines. In f- my challenge to myself was to see how brief I could be and still produce something that had some impact. And that was a, that was a great pleasure also to, to you know, spend part of the day translating the long, complex sentences of Proust and then to work on one single sentence of my own. Kind of a contrast in the extreme. It, yeah. It's so funny, uh, Hemingway was most pleased with this with a story of his that was one sentence long. Oh, really? I don't know that one. It's, I'd love to see it. Yeah, it's something about the fact that the children's, the child's, the baby child's shoes were up for sale, and that was it. <laughs> oh, yes. But, I think I've uh, heard of that one. Yeah. Right. The implication being the child has died, yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. It's, it's very nice to be here in Canada. Lydia Davis is an award-winning novelist, short story writer, and translator. I've been talking to her in Montreal at the Blue Metropolis Writers' Festival.